serve communion in the church where I grew up. <clears throat> I was 11 years old. I was living in East Texas, a little church of about 200 people. And this was in the time when if you served communion, you would meet in a back room with all the communion servers, and then you would walk out together in a single file line like a military, four on the left, front row, four on the right. You wouldn't sit down until you gave everyone the head nod. Some of you remember these churches, right? And this was my first time to serve communion. The night before, I spent the night with a friend. And my mom told me before I went to this friend's house, she was expecting me to be responsible. She said, remember, you're serving communion tomorrow, so take clothes for church. That we didn't have to wear suits and ties in the church where I grew up, but you were expected to at least look presentable. So my mom said multiple times, remember, take church clothes. You're serving communion tomorrow. Well, guess what? I forgot church clothes. So I showed up at church the next morning. My mom didn't see me because I came with a friend, went straight to Bible class, went from Bible class to the communion server room where all the other men looked at me weird because of what I was wearing. Then I came out, my mom didn't see me until it came time for communion. And I stood up in front of the church with these other seven men. And there I was in athletic shorts and a Michael Jordan t-shirt, which is... <laughs> Michael Jordan, the goat. And I, I was sitting there holding the elements. And I was like, just don't make eye contact with my mom. Don't make eye contact with my mom. But you've been there before where you're trying not to make eye contact, but you know their eyes are fixed on you. So I looked at my mom and it was a look of disappointment and frustration and anger, but I knew I was safe in the moment because there's no way my mom's gonna discipline me in a time when I am holding the bread and the cup, right? An hour from now may be a different story, but I remember I was safe. In my time as a paid person in a, working for a church and growing up in the church, there are a lot of communions that I can remember because of maybe communion thoughts or maybe funny things happen where occasionally I've seen people drop a tray and I even dropped a cup. The whole thing of cup went in my lap one time right before I got up to preach. I remember some of these times. I could also, I remember times when like communion has been the saving grace in my life. When communion has been the time when God has called me out of sin and has called me to repentance and has inspired my heart to live in a certain kind of way. Whenever I've baptized people or I've witnessed baptisms, a lot of times it calls me back to my own baptism when I reflect on what does this mean for me and what does it mean for the church. And I want to take a little bit of time this morning, that first half of this sermon, to, to really encourage us and challenge us and lay in front of us. I believe and I give my life to what I'm doing because I believe the church has been empowered by Jesus to be a force in the world for good. That we're not passive and we don't just sit on our hands, but we are God's primary way, plan A, to reach out to the world to let them know about the greatness of Jesus. And God doesn't have a plan B. It's like, man, the church is who God's going to empower and fill with the Spirit and use for His glory. I believe the church is a force in the world, which means we have to be re reminded of who we are and what we've been placed here to do and what Jesus has saved us to do. And let me take us back to two very familiar places in the Bible. One is at the very end of Matthew 28. We know it is the Great Commission. It hangs in a lot of churches. You've heard, count, if you've been in church very long at all, you've heard probably countless sermons on the Great Commission. And it, and it goes like this, and I like to begin not in 28 verse 18, but in 28 verse 16, where, uh, where it says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Let me stop right there on that, that slide. Because for years of my life, I thought Jesus had like walked up the mountain with this 11. But if you read it, it's like Jesus made an appointment with them. 
Like, hey, tomorrow at 3 or tomorrow at 4, you are to meet me at this place. So the 11 are going. And there, they connect with Jesus. There's this meeting with Jesus. And some of those 11 begin to worship him while others doubted. And I've said this over this church countless times. I take great comfort. And this, this verse right here excites me because for those of you who don't feel like you have all the questions or answers to all the questions, you are not disqualified from being empowered by Jesus to be used for his glory. Jesus doesn't separate those who are worshiping from those who still have some doubts of what all has happened. He empowers the worshipers, which included the doubters. And then it says this. Jesus says this over them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means Jesus could do with that authority whatever he wanted to do. What Jesus is bearing testimony to is that God has given all authority to him. And Jesus could do with that whatever he wanted. Set up the kingdom however he wanted to set up the kingdom. And what Jesus chose to do in that moment is to delegate authority. To call people into relationship. So what he says is this. I want you to go into the world. And you make disciples of all nations. You make nations into disciples. And you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he leaves them with the statement of I'm with you always to the very end of time. Jesus is commissioning the 11 to commission the church to know that their mission, what they are put on this earth to do, what they have been saved to do, is not to set up some institution where we just hope that people come and find us where we are. And if they do, after some time, we'll let them know about Jesus. It's that the church has been sent into the world to meet people where they are, to share the message of Jesus everywhere we go. And, and at some point in history, it kind of got flipped to where the church let the world know, hey, come to us and be a part of us. And then maybe we'll tell you about Jesus. But the Great Commission is still so relevant for the church today. Our mission is to go into the world, which means we have to take some things in the world very seriously so that we can connect with the world so they can know about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So the 11 took it seriously. And they go to Jerusalem where they begin praying night and day, waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. Jesus didn't tell them at what time is going to happen. He just says, you go to Jerusalem and you wait for the Spirit to come. So they did. They're meeting night and day in this prayer meeting that wouldn't end. They're praying night and day. And then the Spirit came. And the church is launched in Acts chapter 2. And there's still places all over the world who still celebrate the day of Pentecost. Where on that day, 3,000 people surrendered their life to God, repented of their sin, we're baptized in the Christ. And the question of Acts 2 isn't just how people were saved. It's what do saved people do? And in Acts 2.42, what you read is they devoted themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the teachings of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to fellowship. They were living in unity with one another. The church came together to strengthen each other, equip one another, empower one another so they could be sent out into the world because of this message Jesus had given them. Sometimes I think God looks at us and may say something like this. Uh, If you go to that next slide. I am not going to do everything for you, and I want to stop right there because I think a lot of times Christians would love for God to do just that. That God, we want you to save people. We want people who are disconnected to be connected to Jesus. So God, we need you to go out and save people, redeem people, heal people, reconcile the world to yourself. We would love for God to do all this and we'll applaud God, honor God, worship God when, when God does. But sometimes I think God is saying this. I don't want to do everything for you. Instead, if you go to the next one, I think sometimes God is saying this to the church. There are things in life I want to do with you. Or there are things in life God wants us to do with him. 
of how God wants to save the world and connect people to Jesus and redeem the world and heal the world and liberate the world and reconcile the world that God wants to work in and through the church to accomplish these purposes. Which means we've got to take seriously what it means to be the church that comes together to edify and to be unified. So uh, two, two things we celebrate in the life of this church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I'm not going to go through all the principles of baptism and everything it means, but when I think of baptism, four things do come to mind to me. The baptism is a place of surrender. It's why in this church we practice full immersion. We go under the water, everything we are. We don't go in knee deep, ankle deep, waist deep, neck deep. All we are completely surrender because we, we cannot save ourselves. Jesus saves us. We surrender. I believe baptism is a place of deliverance, of liberation. There are places in the New Testament where baptism is talked about as a place where sins are forgiven. It's an outward expression of something God is doing inside of us. In fact, some, some argue that the word forgiveness also means release. So when you read about forgiveness of sins, it's about being released from sin. I believe baptism is a place of initiation where we're given new identity, where it's new creation. And fourthly, I believe baptism is a place of movement. Meaning that a lot of times the way I teach baptism, even before I baptize people, I want to remind them that God is not just inviting people into the waters of baptism. God is inviting people out of the waters of baptism to live a certain kind of way. So when I baptize people or when I witness a baptism, a lot of times I got to reflect on my own. And because we come together as baptized people, we need to be reminded that because we have been baptized, there are certain things in, the, in life that we do and there are certain things we don't do. Baptized people don't tell racist jokes. Baptized people don't gossip in the workplace. Baptized people try to live every single day that we live out our baptisms and our connection to Jesus. Amen? As a church, every Sunday, we also take communion. It's something we do. We're going to do it here in just a few minutes. And when we take communion, we take the bread and we take the cup. And there are a few things Lord's Supper reminds me of. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. That Jesus died for the sin of the world. He rose again to bring everything that is dead to life. It is participation, that we're not just looking back on an event, we're also participating in this. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened in the past, but it also lets us know that what God did in and through Jesus, Jesus wants to do for you. And thirdly, it's also a place of commitment. That every week, because your hands and your lips touch that cracker which represents the body of Christ and touches that cup which represents the blood of Jesus. We are called to use our hands and to use our mouths to speak and declare kingdom life in the world, not to engage in anything that, that jeopardizes the spreading of the gospel throughout the world. Amen? It's the power of baptism in the Lord's Supper, which reminds us every week that we are united and we are, we are a force. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it's talking about the body and how the body comes together and everyone has their part in the body, it says this, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how the church is called together with all these different parts to be one body that's unified for a specific mission. And the enemy, Satan, the devil, this is what he wants to disrupt. How can he come in and disrupt the unity in the church? To cause a lot of disgruntled people 
So you know what would be helpful in a lot of our churches are the get-along t-shirts, if you go to that next slide. Now, Kip reminded me of these this past week. And <laughs> I don't know if some of you have ever done this, but on Pinterest, you can just, just go pull it up. You'll see all these parents whose kids aren't getting along, so they put them in a get-along t-shirt. And I know this would be helpful in some churches when people have gotten into fights over whether the sermon should be after communion or before communion, or who knows what else. Just put a shirt, make people get along, right? In my family, we haven't done the get-along t-shirt, but there are times where my boys have been getting after each other, and maybe they're in a fight, and they're pushing each other, and I'm like, man, right now, y'all need to shake hands and tell each other you love one another, and they do, and then I'm like, you need a hug, and when they hug, I say, and now I'm starting a timer, and you need to hold that hug for 60 seconds, and if you try to break loose, it starts over, they hate it, and I love it. <laughs> and I, so when it comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't encourage or ask the church to use get-along t-shirts. And Jesus also doesn't take the route of, hey, just hug it up, all right? Hug it up and we'll all be better. What Jesus chose is this. No matter where we are in life, no matter how we, the church, fall in different areas when it comes to how we process some of life, it's the water, the bread, and the cup that unites us together, keeps us together, and reminds us of the mission we are in together. We are united for a mission. And I think that, church, sometimes we can forget this. Sometimes we're like, well, we're united for the sake of edifying the body. And that's true. But that's, that's not all we're here for. It's not just united for the edification of myself. We're united for us to edify one another and care about each other's marriages and families. And it's also not that you come to Jesus so that you're in a mission. You've also got to be united with the church. We are united for the sake of mission. So this morning, we're going to take communion just a little differently. Now listen to instructions, all right? Heaven's not a, heaven and hell aren't on the line right here. We're going to do this just a little differently. I want to ask those who are serving the bread and the cup if you'll go ahead and go to the back. And here's what's going to happen in just a, a few moments. I've got one more story I'm going to tell. And they're going to bring the bread to you. And I'm asking you to take a piece of the bread and to hold it. Hold it in your hand. Put it in a pocket. Put it on your leg. Just don't let your kid get it. All right? You're going to hold it. And then they're going to bring the cup to you, and you're going to get the cup, and you're going to hold the cup. You can hold it in your hand. Put it right there in the pew in front of you. There's a place that can hold it for you. Now, a lot of our memories work. We're so used to this that you're going to probably pinch it, and it's going to go straight to your mouth. Try to remember right now. We're going to hold it. Because in just a few minutes, we're going to take the bread, and we're going to take the cup in unison, reminding each other of the commitment that we are engaged in in the world. That we are a church united and we're united with the mission. One of my favorite ways to think about the church, and I've shared this story countless times. I go back to this story a lot, is the place up in New York City in Manhattan called St. Paul's Chapel. I've, I've, been there, I've been to New York five times. I've been to St. Paul's Chapel five times. It's right across the street from Ground Zero where this picture was taken or where the towers fell. It's where the 9-11 memorial is today. And when the towers fell, St. Paul's Chapel wasn't like nothing fell on top of it. It remained intact. This is the oldest standing building in Manhattan. It's been around since the 1700s. George Washington's pew is in that church right there. 
And what they didn't expect is when the towers fell within 24 hours, there were firefighters and leaders of New York who came to this church and said, knocked on the doors and said, hey, is it possible for you to open up your church? We need this place where firefighters and all these volunteers who for a few days were trying to find rescue lives and then they were involved in cleanup that would go for weeks and months. So St. Paul's Chapel for 24 hours a day, for over a year, opened up the doors in their church and became this safe haven for people where all the volunteers knew they had a place where they could come in and they would provide food and drinks and Gatorade and water and all forms of therapy and massage therapists. But what I love about the way St. Paul's Chapel functioned was this, that if you came into that church in that time, to be nurtured or cared for, you knew you were being cared for, to be sent right back into the battle. And you knew you were being sent out knowing you had a place where you could come to. And there was no one at the front doors of St. Paul's Chapel at a table, like registering people or gauging whether your illness or whether the, whatever you're struggling with is like a real reason for you to come in or receive therapy or not. Because there were forms of therapy that tended to the body where people had hurt shoulders and blisters, but there were a lot of things people needed that didn't show up on the body, like PTSD and mental and emotional stress and broken hearts. And this church became a church that tried to meet all those needs. So this morning, the bread and the cup come to you And there's no one sitting around wondering or questioning or judging whether you are worthy of this bread or cup or not. Jesus says you're worthy. So we come together as a church, and we're going to take this bread and take this cup together in just a few moments to remind ourselves of what we are committed to. So we're going to sing a few songs. The the bread's about to come to you. I'm asking you to take a piece and hold it. And then they're going to bring the cup to you. Take it and hold it. And then I'm going to step back and pray for the bread and the cup. As the trays are making their way back, I heard a story a few few months ago and recorded it and knew there was a Sunday I wanted to use this story. And maybe you heard this on the news at some point. There's a kid named Brody Allen over this past year who, at the age of two, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he lived just outside of Cincinnati with his family and there were multiple tumors in his brain and the family was informed last summer that Brody wasn't going to make it. Brody loved Christmas. And the family knew that Brody wasn't going to make it to Christmas. So the family put on Facebook that last September they wanted to to put together Christmas for Brody. He wouldn't really know if it was Christmas or not. So they put on Facebook because they were struggling to find like where they could buy Christmas lights and things like that. Not everybody, not every place sells them and August or September. So on the Facebook message, people began to share on there. And then folks who are like the Christmas junkies who have Christmas for everybody began to show up. And they came to Brody's house and they began setting up his house for Christmas inside and outside. If you go to the next picture, here's what Brody's house last September began to look like outside. But then what was so cool is the neighbors saw this and the neighbors knew what was going on. That They said, hey, it's not good enough that your family tries to make it look like Christmas. We're going to do it too. So Barbara Elliott, who was one of the six people who lived in that little cove with Brody and his family, Barbara Elliott, they put up stuff in front of her house. And then their neighbor was a woman who only spoke Spanish, doesn't speak any English, but she wanted to get involved. So inside and outside of her house, she set up Christmas. 
And then the community around said, hey, you know what? Every Christmas, we throw that big Christmas parade and everyone comes and they said, hey, we're, we're, we need to do that for Brody. So on September 23rd, neighbors threw a parade where they hung all these banners. And if you go to the next one, I mean, it was a full out parade that they threw in honor of Brody. Brody ended up losing his life not too long after that. And when I hear stories like that, though the church didn't run it, the church didn't put it on, it makes me think that is what the church is supposed to be in the world, that our hearts bent wherever compassion is needed. We hear stories like that, and I think, I mean, that's the church. Like, the, the church is that place that needs to declare life where death is, that we are the place that's called to speak light in the darkness. We don't just wait for darkness to come to us. That's not how light works. Light goes into the world. In Matthew chapter 5, we can never forget the mission that we're on. In Matthew 5, 16, it says this. Jesus says this. In the same way, you let your shine, your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And there's this characteristic place in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul is talking about what's needed of elders in the church. And sometimes we don't focus on this one or talk about it. And in 1 Timothy 3, 7, it says, He, the elders of churches, they must also have a good reputation among outsiders. That, that elders and leaders of churches need to have some kind of connection with disconnected people. Because how are followers and people in a church going to go to meet people in the world where Jesus is needed if the leaders of the church are modeling that? And so grateful to be in a church where we have leaders who are prayerfully trying to model what this looks like. John Maxwell, leadership guru, talks about leadership all over the place. Has written books on leadership. <laughs> I heard Maxwell speak at a conference one time. And he said, there are three questions people ask before they follow. So before people will follow you, the three questions they ask. Do they like me? Can you help me? Can I trust you? Look at those three questions. And maybe let me toss it to you like this. Not just for any follower when it comes to any leader, but when it comes to the church and our reputation today, when it comes to people who are disconnected from the church, either because they've never come to Jesus or maybe they've they left the faith or they left the church for whatever reason, when people in our current culture think about the church and ask those three questions, what is their answer? Do they like me? Can they help me? Can I trust them? Because, can we be honest? Like, I, when I hang around with people who are dis disconnected from Jesus for whatever reason, there are people who love the church, who aren't connected to the church because they've seen the good the church has done. But there are a lot of folks who I get to talk to sometimes who will say things like, I'm surrounded by Christians in my work all the time, yet not one of them has ever talked to me about Jesus. And there are people on social media and people in life who sitting back questioning, like, do the people in the church like me? Like, do they want to pursue me? Because I know people in the church, and I'm not just talking about Sycamore View. I know people in the church want the whole world to be saved. Yet, let's be honest, a lot of times we live like we would be just fine if hell is more populated than heaven. If people who are disconnected from Jesus just remain there. Do you like me? Can you help me? Can I trust you? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Because 
the verse that is quoted more than any other verse is John 3.16, which says this about God. For God so, God so what? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not that God so tolerated the world. It's not that God reluctantly kind of liked the world. It's that for God so loved the world. And can the church say the same thing? Like, because we so love the world, or God so loved the world, so we love the world too, that we, wanna, we want everybody to know what Jesus has to offer to them when it comes to salvation and healing and reconciliation in life. What I want to talk about over the next few weeks is what does it mean to value people, and, and I want to lay a biblical foundation for this next Sunday. But when I think about it, a lot of times I come back to this statement right here. How would you fill in this blank? Like, we value people as long as blank. Because we all have our limits when it comes to valuing people, right? Because if we talk about valuing people, we also have to talk about what it means to devalue people. Like we value people as long as they cheer for the same team I cheer for. We value people as long as they have something to give me. We value people as long as they vote how I want to vote. Or we value people as long, just fill in the blank, right? I'm jumping into a series for the next four weeks. It's called Taboo. It's going to be a four-week series, including today, so I'm going to have three more Sundays after this one. There have been a few issues on my heart that have been there for well over a year that I've wanted to speak a word from the Bible and from God's heart about, and these aren't issues I'm, a, I'm an expert in, but the more I engage the world and the more I talk with people, both inside and outside the church, these are topics that keep coming up. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to try to speak a word of God into your life about, I'm gonna, I want to talk about what it means to value people and what the, how the Bible talks about what it means to value people. I'm going to talk about abuse and sexual abuse and the Me Too movement. And we're going to talk about mental health and mental illness and suicide because these things are rising in our world today, not declining. I'm going to talk about immigration. So with all those words and phrases I just said, some of you, a filter has already come up, or some of you heard that and you're like, whoa, that's a buzzword, but here's what I've come to learn. What some people hear as a buzzword for other people has been a word or a phrase for healing and for connection. It's given them a place where they don't feel lonely anymore. I don't feel like it's my role to tell you exactly how to think about every issue in the world. And if you're sitting there, think like you know how to think and you've come to the conclusion about everything in the world, quit your job, come out of retirement, write a book so all of us can read it, right? I'm not here to tell you exactly how to think, but I do feel like it is my role and the authority that's been given to me by the leaders of this church to help us think biblically and theologically about what's going on in the world and how we engage the world. Because if we just shy away from every conversation in the world, does the world think that we care? But we're not going to get caught up in trying to be an issue-driven church where I'm going to take 20 weeks to talk about every issue we can think about because we don't need it. When it comes to preaching, I'm driven by a couple of questions. And one is this, what does the church need? And I feel like God gives me clarity sometimes of, here, here's what the church needs. And even when I walk you through a gospel like Gospel of Mark, or I walk you through a book like Revelation, or Ephesians, or Exodus, I'm always asking, God, what does the church need? Because I'm not just trying to take information and deposit that into your mind. I want to preach in a way that has an impact on how you live on Monday, and Thursday, and Friday. Because every week when we come together, we need to know evangelism's on the line. The soul and the care for people in the world is on the line. Reconciliation is on the line. We're not just going through motions and going through games. we got to be prepared for something. So a lot of times I ask God, what does the church need? And I feel like God sometimes answers that and speaks into it. But then sometimes God asks a different question. 
what does the world need from the church? Because sometimes the only question the church may ask is, what does the church need? How are we edified? How do we build each other up? How are we strengthening marriages? Yet sometimes God's saying, okay, what does the world need from the church? Like, how is the church being called to live in a certain way in the world? What does the church need? Because the issue isn't do we engage in the world, it's how do we do it, right? Like if there are, and here's the deal, all right? For those of you in this room, and there are dozens of you, and I've talked to a number of you, who struggle with deep forms of mental illness and struggle with mental health, whether it's depression, anxiety, who knows what it is. You're in an arena. Brene Brown talks about the arena. It's like you are in a fight. For those in this room, and I've talked to a number of you who have experienced forms of abuse in your life, you're in the arena. And it can feel so lonely in the arena. And it's the call of the church to listen to how people's hearts are breaking, to know when we need to step into an arena or not. Let me, let me, let me try it like this. Uh, my boys play sports, and I usually coach them, but I'm the assistant coach, not the head coach, because I get way too into it, all right? I've only received one technical foul in my boys' basketball careers, and the ref deserved that technical foul, all right? I didn't curse. It was in the name of Jesus, all right? Uh, when Noah was in kindergarten, he was playing a basketball game. And I was an assistant coach. I'm standing next to the head coach. It's kindergarten. It's not like they're really calling rules and fouls. So Noah had the ball and was about to shoot. And a kid who was like twice Noah's size fouled Noah. Fouled him pretty hard. Hit him pretty good. The kid ran down the court. So all the kids start running down the court. And I look at the head coach and I said, hey, man, one day that's the kid. who He, he's, he doesn't get bullied around. One day I'm going to look up and Noah's going to be in a fight. Like, because somebody pushed him around on a court. And it was in that moment, out of my peripheral vision, I saw an adult running out of the stands onto the court. And I turned to look to see what it was and who it was. And it was Casey, my wife, running out of the stands onto the court where she runs into the lane where 10 kids are playing. And then I look, and there's Noah, who is bowed up to this kid who is twice his size, has him by the jersey, and is about to punch him in the face. This other kid was mortified. And Casey grabs Noah. I think she just like pointed at him and she's like, you better stop. And then Casey looks at me over there on the sideline and she gives me one of these like. <laughs> what are you doing, coach? <clears throat> I, so here's the deal. There's so many of you and people in the world who are in the arena in a fight. And some of you know it. And you jump in because we don't want people to be alone. And then there's some of you like me that there are fights that we would have jumped into if we knew it was happening, but we didn't know it was happening. And this is what sometimes breaks my heart for people I get to walk with in the church and in life is that sometimes it's, it's like it's too late. Like you hear something, you're like, man, if I would have known, I would have jumped in. If I would have known this person took their life and that they were thinking about taking their life, I would have done something. I would have... I would have been there for a call. I would have called. If I would have, if you heard people before and you're like, man, they filed for, for divorce. I didn't even know there were marriage struggles. I would have jumped in. That person's been depressed or addicted to something for years. If I would have known, I would have done something. And part of it is the church hasn't always been the safe place for people to come and feel like they can share things. Brene Brown once asked people, she said, how many of you feel like when you were vulnerable, it is weakness? And almost everyone in the room raised their hand. 
And then she said, but how many of you feel like when you see someone else be vulnerable, then it's courage and almost everyone raised their hands. That it's hard for us to be vulnerable about things, but we think it's courageous and heroic when other people are. So the church becomes this safe place. And here's what we've got to know. Is the church has to be willing to jump into the arena to fight when we need to fight. And what we also have to know is that when there are moments that arise where we need to run into a fight, we don't run away from a fight because we've done that too often too. Let me show you a video. Brene Brown, this is a two and a half minute video where she talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And it's too good for me not to show. And I want to come back just with a couple of more comments and one more story. But I want you to watch this. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. What I've learned from people is that people want to be heard before people are fixed. Which means we've got to be committed to connection. I'm excited about the next few weeks, even though it's going to be hard and we're going to we're going to jump into some stuff that's not really easy to talk about, but I think the church is at its best when we're not shying away from everything going on in the world, but trying to come together as people who've been baptized, who take communion to remind each other why we are here and what it means to lend our hearts in a compassionate way to the world. 
I believe this series is going to do four things, four big things. One, it's going to be a call to healing, which means we've got to, we've got to own up. Like when the church says stuff like we're safe for all people, we've got to mean it. So it's going to be a call to healing for those who need healing. It's going to be a call to repentance for those who need to repent. Sometimes our repentance is that there's a fight and I knew I should have stepped in, but I didn't. We've got to repent of where the church has been absent. I believe this is going to be a call to focus, to make sure our eyes are staying focused on the things that need to be focused on, that our, our views and convictions are being formed by the things of God and the heart of God, not by anything else, and that this is a call to learning what it means to love and to value people just as God does. Let me end with two statements, and I want to say them one after another, one at a time, and say them very slowly, and you may choose to take pictures of them after I say them. One is this, that I believe we, the church, are at our best when we are clinging and pressing into God while paying just enough attention to the world to know how to navigate kingdom life. Let me say that again. We're at our best when we're clinging and pressing into God while paying just enough attention to the world to know how to navigate kingdom life. And here's the second one, that we're at our worst when we are clinging and pressing in the cultural and political ideologies while paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. That we're at our worst when we're clinging and pressing in the cultural and political ideologies while paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. There's a man named Martin. I don't even know how to say his last name. He's German. He was a pastor of a church in Germany at the time of Adolf Hitler. He ended up dying. He was assassinated because of his faith. And a few days before he died, he wrote this from prison. He said, in Germany, they first came for the communists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And when they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. Church, we have been baptized into the power of Jesus. We take communion every week to remind us who we are. And this week, may we be the people who shine a light in this dark world. And may we be a church that is always a place of healing and courage and boldness for anyone who needs it. Let's stand and let's sing this song.